Welcome to the RSP Cast Film and Theory. Adam Harstead, Matt Waldman here. We're going to talk a little bit about the Jonathan Taylor situation. Um, we're going to look at talk about players who may have an injury that keeps them out for just a few weeks into the season, and how we view um, how we value them, whether we buy into that value or whether we prefer to stay away, and also maybe compare that to players who have longer-term injuries who may come back mid to late um, later in the season and uh, you know who who maybe is on our waiver wire Rolodexes um, as we start to you know as we're in the middle of drafting a lot of teams for you know in the preseason and thinking about guys that may not make our clubs or make any clubs but we're we're keeping an eye on them for weeks one through three as things starts to shake out so, uh, so Adam, let's just get right into it and, you know, talk a little bit about this Jonathan Taylor situation. Certainly, he's been given five days, apparently, to, 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 to shop for a trade offer. And according to Cecil Lammy, um, our buddy over at Football Guys, he, he says that the, at least talking to, you know, different scouts, the idea here is, is that Jim Mersey it really wants Taylor to do the legwork to find out what lowball offers these teams would make for him and what they would pay him. And then he's hoping to use that to say, well, here's the starting point for our negotiation um, and try and pay him, you know, close to that and, and leave it at that. So just out of curiosity, I mean, Cecil says Denver and Miami seem to be to the big the teams that they're really that have shown the most interest thus far um are you buying that those teams are interested are there other teams that in theory you'd like to see him with um that you think would make sense um that maybe we haven't heard from yet in case that's just kind of a ruse and people are you know people tend you know cecil i think pretty much tends to talk to people who who are going to share him some you know reasonable information but Oftentimes we still get smoke screens and, and also there's maybe somebody who comes out of the woodwork that we didn't anticipate. So, you know, all that in mind, you know, weigh in on Jonathan, on this whole situation with Taylor and tell us where, what your thoughts are. Yeah. So we talked about it a bit last year that, um, you know, I think the NFL salary market is pretty good. Um, the market rate contract is like what that player is worth in terms of wins and losses by and large and you know some people think that there's minor inefficiencies here or there and um, i do think like top end quarterbacks because of the way negotiations work like the, the top three to five quarterbacks are underpaid um, but for the most part you know however much salary cap dollars a guy is going to cost on a new extension that's about what he's going to be worth um, but with that in mind anytime you're trading draft picks for the right to give somebody a market rate extension, you're overpaying by however many draft picks you traded. You know, if Jonathan, if, if the market decides Jonathan Taylor is worth eight million a year or five million a year or ten million a year, whatever it decides on, um, if you are trading a first round pick for the right to give him five, eight, ten million dollars a year, um, you're you're losing out on value. Those the the picks are um, cost controlled and and it's just not a good idea to trade for somebody who's going to be looking to set the market. Um, so from a, from a strategic standpoint, um, 
I don't think any teams should be in on the Jonathan Taylor trade. I think it totally makes sense for Indianapolis to extend him at market rate. And I get that the disagreement right now is, is what's market rate. Um, Taylor thinks he's worth more. Indianapolis thinks average market rate is less. And perhaps this is a ploy by Ursay to prove to Taylor that like, no, the market will not support what you think you're worth here. Like, I get that you think you're worth that, but 32 teams out there are going to disagree. Um, and we've seen that before where, where players had an inflated sense of their own value. And so the team has said, well, okay, as a reality check, go ahead and negotiate. And, and you can see if anybody's, if anybody out there agrees with you about that value. Um, and if not, then, you know, we can come back here and we can, we can have productive discussions at, at this new price point. Um, so I don't think any team should be in on trading for Jonathan Taylor. Uh, in terms of what landing spots would be fun, uh, I root for chaos a lot. Uh, so I would love to see him go to Dallas. Uh, just because, you know, like Tony <laughs> Pollard is stuck by Zeke Elliott for years and years. And, and he's finally getting his chance to shine. And he's one of the most hyped up picks of 2023. And everybody's excited. And I feel like it would be just just stereotypical Jerry Jones to trade you know, like two first round picks for Jonathan Taylor and give him like 15 million a year and stick Pollard back in his third down change of pace role. Um, and this is definitely a statement against interest because I just traded for Tony Pollard in one of my dynasty leagues. But um, I would I would enjoy watching the Twitter fantasy football above real football fans howling if that went down. And I'd agree with them that it's a bad move and Dallas definitely shouldn't do that. But, um, you know, it's kind I, of fun I watching get, people score. I get that. I'd kind of love that too. Almost as much as I would love a combination of Rico Doddle and and um, um, Vaughn to actually be the one-two punch and Pollard to like wind up like, like still in a three-headed committee. Like yeah. that would be... I think from a twi watching a Twitter meltdown or a, a, just a football meltdown from the football public, seeing Dowdle and, and Vaughn basically have an equal role to Pollard would just make me laugh so hard. And there's a possibility that might happen. Or, or what if Pollard goes into the Ezekiel Elliott role and he averages like 4.1 yards per carry on high volume and then Deuce Vaughn comes in and does the Tony Pollard role and he's the guy averaging 5.7 yards per carry and a ton of catches and then just watching Twitter be like oh Tony Pollard's washed why aren't they giving Deuce Vaughn more carries I would, total role I would I would pay money to see that as an Ezekiel Elliott fan of, of his <laughs> game I would probably yes that would be uh, that would be worthwhile I'll be washing dishes in the Dallas Cowboys cafeteria you know for, for that to happen for sure so it, it yeah for me I mean in th I I mean it the arguments you make about the the negotiation make the most sense and it's understandable that a guy like Jonathan Taylor who has worked as hard as he has to become a top running back in the league at least on on talent um, when you get to that point and you're a competitive human being, and now it's time for you to get paid and you're looking around and going well the market sucks for running backs right now and it's going to suck that way for 
you know, what, another seven or eight years, you know, with the CBA, current CBA. And I'm not sure the next CBAs, they're going to be able to do anything to alter that with the next CBA to make this worthwhile for this position. It's probably going to be, you know, we're going to have to see how the game evolves to, to determine whether or not running backs generate more value. So with that in mind, I understand the, the ploy by, or the, the, the tactic by Ursay to say, here, this is the deal. But what we don't know is how Ursay presented it. Based on yeah. based on how we've seen Ursay in the media, it's entirely plausible that he didn't say, look, Jonathan, we think you're one of the best running backs in the league, um, but the market just sucks for you guys right now. And we're not going to, for the best of the team, we're going to continue to abide by the market. We value you as a player, but you're, but unfortunately your your position does not get paid what what you think it's worth and we'd like we want you to be a cult as long as you can possibly be, produce at the level that you have and we believe you can still do it so but why don't you look around and see what we're telling you about and figure that out and hopefully you'll stay with us and we can build a winner here with you i doubt Ursay's done that. I bet Ursay's probably been more, you know, either just not responsive or just at all. And it just makes it sound like he doesn't care one way or the other. You can have, you know, some people have emotional intelligence and some some, some people are um, like myself and, and Jim Ursay where wear baseball caps in public and, and, and well, Ursay's case probably looks like he's trying to be an Eminem clone, you know in public and and do ridiculous things where he's acting like he's a 13 year old as opposed to an owner of a business but uh no i'm in all seriousness i would say that he's it, there's probably some communication disconnect there and and that's probably led to it and even if he's right about how he's presented it you know it looks like a slap in the face to a to a player agreed and i push back a little bit on the idea that the market sucks for running backs I mean, running backs make about as much money as offensive guards. Um, are running backs more important to an offense than guards? I don't know. I, I mean, you know, you don't see guards holding out and, and holding Zoom calls about how the market sucks for them. True. Uh, I think it's just expectations that for the longest time, running back was a glory position and they received um, awareness and accolades that I think were disproportionate to their value on the field. And for the longest time, to win an MVP award, you either had to be a quarterback or a running back. And so running backs are looking and they're seeing like, you know, we are the only guys in the league who can be MVP other than quarterbacks. We're, we're incredibly valuable. Um, but I mean, the reality is, you know, if, if the CBA comes and has a special carve out that, that fixes the running back position, I think guards have a legitimate gripe. I think centers have a legitimate gripe. I think center's probably more important for an offense than running back because they're the guys who are making all the protection calls at the line. Um, tight end makes about as much as running back. Um, and in today's modern offenses, I don't know that tight ends aren't more valuable than running backs. I think the market for running backs is fair and I think its weakness has been exaggerated um, because there are running backs who are getting pretty solid deals still. Um, what Dalvin Cook just got like eight million. Um, That's a good point, and maybe you know I hate to say this as someone who loves the running back position, 
but maybe they're kind of like the overprivileged Karens of the football world right now that they've so long have been celebrated for things that really didn't make as much sense um, or made more sense back in the day, but not so much now. And, and because in the high school game, they, they still are that valuable um, because the quality of offensive line play is so sparse. You know, you, ha you might have one good offensive lineman on two teams that play. Um, who might make it to a college level and may not even be that good at the college level. Um, and then in the college game, you might have, you might have, you know, a handful of teams that have three or four offensive linemen who are going to really be good pros one day, you know, in terms of like making a team being able to contribute. So yeah, it's very possible that the way they get built up from high school and college, and then they enter the NFL and they don't realize that you're not as you're not as valuable now because the offensive lines are good enough that you know in very rare cases and i think that in the, in the way that the offensive lines have offensive linemen have developed they've gotten more athletic the um the intricacy of football as a whole has demanded more from them um i get it i i think that makes total sense and and so i can totally i i, I like that argument that said i mean i'd like to see you know, I'd like to see Taylor stay in in Indianapolis as well because I, he is valuable to Anthony Richardson. I know that a lot of, you know, you broached this before the show. You said, you know, a, a lot of people say Anthony Richardson is going to help, is really going to work out regardless of whether they have the running back or not or, or that, you know, he's going to help Jonathan Taylor with his ability to run. He helps the running back. But it's... I would say it's a mutual benef mutually beneficial thing because when you have the threat of a runner at quarterback to take plays outside, you stretch out the defense horizontally and that gives you bigger rushing lanes for the running back. You can see where you know linebackers and safeties are going to be in certain binds or how linemen are going to cheat in a certain way with their alignments and you can tell you know, pre-snap, you're going to be able to start to tell those things and say, okay, we're, we're running a read play on this. I'm most likely I'm going to keep this, or most likely I'm going to hand this off based on the past five plays that we had, that this tackle is going to overplay it. And Taylor's going to wind up getting a crease that instead of it being a three to five yard gain, you're looking at a 30 to 50 yard gain. Um, based on the alignments and, and how that works out. And with a guy like Taylor, he gives you that opportunity in a way that Zach Moss wouldn't have given you. Evan Hole probably isn't going to give you. Or maybe Deion Jackson can give you in terms of speed, but he can't give you those hard three to five yards that we've talked about in the past about being reliable on a down-to-down -down basis that Jonathan Taylor can give. We talked about the Deion Lewis, Ezekiel Elliott stuff last week about how you know getting a, you know getting the expected yards from a from a play is is important and i'm not talking i guess i'm not talking the statistically yards over expectation and things like that but it's probably related closely to that um but yeah you have that you have the fact that taylor is a good receiver you don't have to take him off the field um, in, a, in a variety of situations. You might want to spell them, obviously, the way that they want to spell running backs these days, not to, to wear them out. But you can use them pretty much situationally in any way that you want. And it helps the play-action game. And you, The best friend 
of a young quarterback in addition to you know maybe the tight end is part of that crew but the reason he's part of that crew is the play action game because you're just buying more time you're going to you're going to be able to effectively cut off the field in into certain halves or quadrants where he has he can limit his vision if need be I don't think Richardson needs his vision limited as much as, say, a, a Marcus Mariota still does to, to function in the league as a high-end starter or as a productive starter. Um, but I think that Richardson, it would still be helpful to have selected plays where he can focus on a certain quadrant. And if it doesn't work out, he's going to have likely have room to run because of the effect of play action. And that teams have to respect that Jonathan Taylor isn't just going to get shut down on the hard yardage plays. That he's going to keep the chains moving in a manner where the, the, the offense stays on schedule and the defenses have to respect that. So, for me, I, I think he benefits you know, in, in terms of keeping the playbook open and making the giving Anthony Richardson the best possible plays for those situations, that's where he's valuable for them um, or, or for, for Richardson's development as a rookie. And I don't think they have a running back who can do that on this team after Taylor on the depth chart. Yeah, I think that um, I think analytics actually has a pretty good handle on the value of a running back's direct production. And the analytics would say that um, you know, it, you don't need an all-pro running back for defenses to respect play action. A lot of that's just instinct that's been drilled into them at every level up to the NFL. And for them to, like, respect play action to Zach Moss less than play action to Jonathan Taylor, they'd have to, like, mentally overcome all those instincts, and that slows them down. And um, So I do think there is... I mean, the, analytic, the analytics crowd would say that, like, we know how valuable running backs are. We have all these direct measures. I can tell you that, like, if you take this running back out and put this running back in, the offense is going to, they're going to lose this many first downs. They're going to lose this many points. Um, and I think that's reasonable uh, insofar as it goes. Uh, I remember, um, I believe, Jason Lisk um, a few years or, or many years back, I think like in 2015, did a study looking at whether um, running backs provided additional value for rookie development um, above and beyond the impact on the field. And something like this, where you're not measuring direct first order outcomes, basically any study you can think of, no matter how clever and how well designed, is going to be underpowered to find any true effects. Like you're never gonna be able to say confidently like, yes, this is definitely real or no, this is definitely not. But he did find, and again, you know, underpowered study. I, I I don't have a ton of confidence in this, but he the data he found was suggestive that um, for offenses and especially for offenses with young developing quarterbacks, the impact like the, the teams that had good running backs, their offensive production was was higher than you would expect from the running backs production alone. Like the production difference between a Jonathan Taylor and a Zach Moss is X but they found that the total offense production difference between an offense featuring John Taylor and an offense featuring Zach Moss was greater than X. Um, and again, this is mostly just suggestive. It's, it's pointing at an area for further study, but I also find it plausible that um, having a good running back on the offense makes a young quarterback's life easier in ways that we are not currently 
equipped to detect um, or ways that like in areas that we're not currently looking at that that it's one of those more than the sum of its parts things um, and so I think that it's plausible that Richardson um, would be better this year with Taylor than he was without Taylor even above and beyond Taylor's direct impact on the offense and also in terms of downside risk um, and this is pretty speculative on my part but I always sometimes wonder if like quarterback development is just avoiding catastrophic setbacks for as long as possible like you it as long as you as long as things don't go just terribly horribly wrong for a quarterback that can continue developing um, and I think that Jonathan Taylor helps protect you against potential catastrophic cases um, where like maybe if Taylor's not there there's like a one in 100 chance that things just go catastrophically wrong and like a 99 in 100% chance that you're you're completely fine. Um, and then it's a question of whether it's worth paying Taylor to avoid that downside risk in Richardson's development, just because, I mean, I think everybody agrees that the Colts are probably not competing this year, maybe not next year. The, the future of the franchise is going to be almost entirely determined by how good Anthony Richardson is or isn't. Um, and so it might make sense, more sense for the Colts than even other teams to overpay a little bit just to protect their investment in Richardson. And I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, again, at this point, it's all speculative. Um, the data might support it very, very weakly, but if it was true, I don't think that there would be any way of us demonstrating it to anybody's satisfaction one way or another. Uh, but just another argument that I could see being raised in favor of Indianapolis paying Taylor, which I hope they do. I think the best long-term outcome for all involved, assuming that Taylor and Ursay haven't burned bridges and Taylor wouldn't just genuinely be happier in a new work situation, which I can understand and respect, but provided nothing um, has happened to that effect, I think the best outcome for all involved would be for Indianapolis to extend Jonathan Taylor at a market rate deal or even a little, you know, like 10% over market rate. Yeah. And it's, it's a fascinating discussion because I, I think that, you know, when I talk to some analytics people I know from the league and I hear, you know, they appreciate the intellectual honesty that's lately happened about EP, you know, things like EPA and they feel like it doesn't stop people in the public space of using EPA and EPA-based metrics like a club and beating people over the head with it. Um, and, you know, when it comes to, you know, talking about the differences between, you know, play action, I can understand the argument about they just, that's just instinctive one way or the other. But I also have to think that there is a level of bias when you know who that player is and that they can they can beat you in a certain manner um and you're studying film on those guys all week or for two weeks in advance or three weeks in advance and you know that that player is capable of creasing you in a in a way that another player isn't if you take a wrong step um and one step can matter a great deal the, the, the difference is that I'm talking about this anecdotally and when you do a study with it, how much is the study gonna be able to show that? You know, some level of emotional or bias bleeding over to, you know, performative bias. Um, you know, I don't know whether 
you're going to be, like you said, is that's not going to be able to be done to some level of satisfaction. But I'm more on the side of believing that if you place a lot of emphasis on on something like that, that it's likely going to impact your performance to a to a certain degree that it's just hard to quantify. And and I think that that's the difficulty of it is that when you look at you know the at the the metrics of things is that. Um, you know, one of my one of my contacts that they did an experiment over ten years ago, on you know, and it wasn't just on EPA; it was tuned based on personnel and matchups, and and basically see that the the average or general EPA breakpoints by themselves just aren't sufficient for making you know certain decisions, um, and that we you know that. You know, for him, he was like, it's amazing to me that we have so many smart individuals that continue to ignore the level of skewness, uncertainty, and EPA-based models and try to make them black and white. You know, and you're not doing that. You don't remotely do that. Um, but I think that it's, that's what makes it difficult is that, is that, you know, you don't want to overvalue what the running back does. And, and I think your points about, you know, that we've done that are quite valid. I mean, in, in the scheme of everybody else as a part of a team, um, especially when back in the day, if we're still looking at Jim Brown as the model for what a running back was, well, he was as big as offensive lineman. So when you had a player who was that much of, much of a mismatch back in history, where he was as big as the offensive lineman or the defensive lineman, bigger than the linebackers and faster than the cornerbacks, then yeah, you're going to pay players who have that, you know, that kind of mismatch in skill and athletic ability, that's long gone. You know, I mean, the last player that we could probably argue that had that kind of mismatch and he wasn't as big as lineman was Bo Jackson, you know, and that lasted, you know, a couple of years. So, I mean, it's... I'd say um, Marshall Falk, but I'm a huge Marshall Falk fan. Yeah, and I love... And, and that was more of a schematic mismatch than yes. a than an athletic mismatch. And that's a great point too, you know. And then you could have said maybe Edger and James would have been on that list um, before his injury, and then he was just a damn good back after his injury. But he would have he would have been one of the greatest of all time, I think, just based on what he could do: size, speed, you know, short area acceleration, um, and all the technical skills as a receiver blocker. Um, yeah, we're fantastic. So, yeah, I mean, I think we've spent enough time on this one to to kind of see where this where where this leads or where the, the where the, we are at the seams of you know any possible territory and 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 kind of stop it at it there. What about um? What about guys maybe on your waiver wire right now? Guys that you know, do you have keep a little? mental Rolodex of guys that you, you watch for on waivers or are you more of a, let's just see what pops off and, and I'll broach it then. So I do typically have um, a watch list um, where I'm basically using the waiver wire as an extension of my bench where I like this guy and I want him on my team, but also I don't think he's really on anyone else's radar. Um, so I'm going to like, I'm going to stash him on the wire for now. And then I keep a watch list just to remind myself to check in. And then, and every week I think, you know, what are the odds that they come to common attention this week? 
if the starter in front of them is injured and there's a chance they'll play, then I'll scoop them up and I'll protect them on my bench. But for the most part, it's it's fairly risk-free, um, especially for guys who are going to be who are injured right now or who are going to be um, buried for a year or two to just kind of leave them on the on the wire um, and see what happens. So I do have um, that kind of guy where I'm basically treating the wire as an extension of my bench. Um, but in terms of of like true waiver wire ads. Uh, usually I'm just waiting and seeing what comes up um, and I'll flag, you know, uh, I, I watch the drops. I like the the second um, wave waivers are my go-to where like everybody bids big on the first waiver run of the week. And then I wait and see who gets dropped to make room for the first waiver run. And then I go for those guys. Um, Cause I think, especially in redraft managers get way too impatient. And I do this study every year. Um, if you look at, the correlation between performance from week one to four and rest of your performance. And you look at the correlation between preseason ADP and rest of your performance. Um, they're basically identical. And some years it'll favor one or the other. But but every year, I've been doing this for eight or nine years now. Um, and over this huge sample, um, that's the tipping point, that, that preseason ADP is about as accurate as the first quarter of the season for predicting what's going to happen the rest of the way. Um, so I love guys who were like drafted in the 10th round of the draft and they have like two bad weeks at the beginning of the year and they're getting cut. Um, those That's typically in redraft or sometimes even in dynasty. I've seen guys who were drafted in the second or third round of rookie drafts who are getting cut within the first month of the season. Um, so I'm more of a waiver opportunist. Yeah, it's I play on Flea Flicker, and Flea Flicker is fun because it has a player history feature where you can click on a player and then hit history, and it'll show all of the transactions involving that player. Um, and I have a few guys of the like extension of my bench variety where if you look at the the transaction history, it's just me adding and dropping them like 50 times over the last decade. Um, but for the most part, um, I think all of my most productive use of the waiver wire is just getting people who my league mates were too impatient on yeah because i think and that that sounds it's also kind of intuitively what i try to caution readers about during the first four weeks of the season is like you can go oh and four in a lot of leagues and you'll be just fine if you stay patient with with a lot of your roster moves and 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 I think that people oftentimes give up way too soon and don't realize that, you know, you can you can really start building a strong team between weeks six and eight, six and ten, and and make enough changes that you can you wind up getting into the playoffs and having the strongest performer at, at the end of the year, even if your record doesn't start off four and oh you know three and one or even you know i would say even the i extended to the first six weeks because i think the first four weeks may be what you know what you're looking at and then it takes a couple weeks to make the adjustments that you need to make so even if you go one and five or oh and six i've seen people you know it's anecdotal but i think that you know that's the fun of fantasy football to me is that even if you start slow it's not about whether you, you know, people get too caught up in the, in the image of what their record looks like rather than whether they have a good team. And, and 
building the team all year to me is the fun part because it's more satisfying for me maybe it's emotionally more satisfying to start off with an 0 and 3 1 and 4 1 and 5 team and then wind up with a points leader and a and a and a you know strong contender for a championship if not winning winning a championship you know from that beginning point because it just shows the effort and the ability to to work all the different resources that you have i mean for for me this year there's some guys on my on my short list that um that catch my eye um denver's jaleel mclaughlin is a good example of a player that if javante williams can't get the knee right and you're looking at Samaj P. Ryan as your lead back, you absolutely are going to expect the coaching staff to say, we need a game breaker to, to be a part of a bigger part of this offense. And Jaleel McLaughlin is essentially, from what I've seen on film since December of last year, he reminded me of Philip Lindsay with actual receiving chops. So, this is a this is a player that could have a a, a, a bigger long term opportunity than Lindsay, who was a fantastic decision maker. I mean, Jay Moyer um, over at Fantasy Astronauts and formerly, you know, with this, um, you know, with the RSP, often talked about and showed Philip Lindsay's decision making skills being upper level for a running back. So he, the, the biggest issue was he's too light to pass protect with any level of reliability and that he couldn't he wasn't a, a good receiver um so if mclaughlin has that same kind of decision making skill so i'm very interested to see i think he beats out tyler Beatty without uh without really even as much of a an issue as people want to make it you know as who are fans of him um and then ronnie bell the michigan wide receiver with um I'll give you three, actually. Ronnie Bell, Michigan wide receiver with the 49ers, has really produced well in the preseason. And he reminded me of kind of a, you know, a Robert, an aspirational Robert Edwards guy who can kind of do a little bit of everything for you, a little bit more of an underneath player who, with play action, can get on top of a defense good after the catch, can start off on special teams. Um, and he's, he's someone, again, one of those Michigan receivers that highly recruited the offense doesn't really didn't really give them the greatest opportunities to show what they can do athletically their draft capital tends to be low um, another highly recruited guy five-star recruit who is making noise in tampa bay is rakeem jarrett and he was another guy who played special teams extraordinarily well at maryland he, he was not just a punt returner but he covered punts and he was usually one of the gunners who was the first down and reliable guy. So when you look at someone with his pedigree who performed well on special teams in the ACC, and then you watch what he does as a route runner after the catch, kind of more of a slot option. Well, Justin Gage just got hurt. And he's out for the year. And Baker Mayfield, listen, I mean, uh, I pick on him a lot, but I'll say that you're probably going to need three strong receivers on that team they've got two strong receivers right now but the guy who's probably going to suffer compared to what his ability is is chris godwin because baker mayfield his accuracy tends to suffer the most on plays on intermediate routes over the middle um, or certain timing routes 
against tight man-to-man coverage. And the player who's going to, you know, Mike Evans is probably going to get a little bit more, is going to probably not take as much of a hit because he does well up the seams and in the vertical routes that Mayfield throws well, like the corner route, sail route, you know, the seam route. He does pretty good on those. Um, but the digs, some of the some of the crossers that they the intermediate over routes that they threw to Beckham that frustrated Beckham and Beckham's daddy, um, you know, with the whole video, you know, with the whole video analysis they had there. Um, you're going to see more of that with Godwin, and I think with Jarrett, you're going to see him being probably be, be the guy that has the best matchups along with the tight end and uh, you know Kate Otten. And I don't know if Otten's going to deliver that value, but Jarrett's a guy I'd like to keep an eye on just because it wouldn't be surprising if he ends up delivering a little bit on that Elijah Higgins kind of vibe that Baker Mayfield and Higgins had for stretches of the year. And maybe that turns into something that you can use as a bye week option that's helpful to you, depending on matchups. I'm disappointed in you for not mentioning Skylar Thompson. I figured for sure you'd get uh, your your weekly Skylar Thompson uh, yeah, yeah. I, he, has, he hasn't been he hasn't been paying me lately I think he's worried about Mike White a little bit but uh but you know I I have a rock solid contract with Chad Kelly but you know and see I just mentioned him just now but the uh see now you got it you got to convert it to to, to like what, what's the what money do they use in Canada yeah that's true that's true got to convert but, it Canadian but, dollars but I like the Canadian bagels the Montreal bagels are you know are pretty are pretty good but Thompson <laughs> Thompson I will say I mean Thompson's embedded on my list still I mean I I'm still a I, I believe that he'll probably win this job and he's still a guy that I would I would definitely keep on that list as well. Um, so I like um, yeah. I like uh, Daniel Bellinger with the New York Giants. Not so much for redraft, um, but he's a guy who I had rostered kind of end of my bench, and then the Giants traded for Waller, and now I'm like, okay, it's probably safe to let him sit on waivers for a little bit. I don't know. Maybe it's not now that I'm saying this, in case any of my league mates are, miss- are listening. But um, I like him a lot long-term. Some guys who... who I think do a pretty good job at evals. We're we're pretty high on him. Um, yeah, I was just checking my my watch list, and it's we just did rookie drafts, so it's picked pretty clean right now. But that'll build up over the course of the season. Yeah. So, what about guys who who've been dinged up, but maybe they're expected uh, to be back within the first two to three weeks of the season? Guys like Jackson Smith and Jigba, Traylon Burks, Kadarius Tony. Um, outside of, outside of, I, I know that there, it's hard to remove their individual situations like Tony's immaturity and penchant for getting hurt, but like Jackson Smith and Jigba is a good clean example of where, you know, quality prospect hasn't had much of an injury history, you know, wrist injury right off the bat. You know, I still hear people talking about him as if they they think of him as an outside receiver. So they go, well, Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf are starters anyway. So you really can't expect a a lot of value out of him. And I'm thinking, yeah, but I, I think that we're missing out again on the Seahawks being a three receiver team this year, as opposed to being a two receiver team. And that the slot receiver will more often be Lockett, and they're going to see a higher amount of that based on what the Rams do. But say you know whether that 
let's say that's the case and you value Smith and Jigba as that third option do you do you buy into players who may get a little bit of a you get a little bit of a discount on them because they're going to be out for the first one to three weeks or or do you tend to be shy away from them so there's two real questions at play here and one is the wholly objective question of how valuable are the first three weeks of the fantasy season and that one's actually really easy to answer um easy straightforward to answer it's very straightforward to answer just with math and thought experiments and um so like the simplest way to demonstrate it that I know is say you're in a 12 team league and in this league, six teams make the playoffs, one team wins the championships. If you don't know anything about your team other than that you're in this league, you know, you pick a team at random from this league, it's odds of winning the title this year are one in 12. Okay, if you pick another team from this league at random and I tell you one thing and I say that team made the playoffs, it's odds of winning the title are one in six because there's six playoff teams, one of them's gonna win the title. So the entire value of the regular season, the entire regular season combined can double your championship odds. It's a little more complicated with the buy, but by and large, during the course of the regular season, you go from 12 teams with a one in 12 shot to six teams with a one in six shot. So those 14 weeks double your odds. Now the course of the playoffs in the three week playoffs, if I told you this team's alive in the playoffs, it has a one in six chance. And if I tell you this team wins the title, it has a one in one chance. So the entire value of the playoffs, those three playoff weeks, uh, is up to a six times multiplier on your title odds because you go from one in six to one in one. Uh, so by that simple math, the playoffs alone, the three playoff weeks are three times as valuable as the 14 regular season weeks. That's even if you don't know how good your team is, like you can, you can look at it another way if I told you, if, if I were a genie and, you know, you rub the lamp and I come out and I said, I'm the weird world's weirdest genie, I can only grant one wish. And that wish is I will guarantee you the highest score in one week this season. Okay. You're going to have your team. You're going to play out your team, but I'm just going to use my magic. And there's on your, on your previously selected week, you're going to have the highest score in the entire league. Um, if you take that score in the regular season, it's guaranteed to matter because you're guaranteed to be alive. If you take that score in the playoffs, maybe you get eliminated in the regular season and it's all pointless, it doesn't matter. But still, if you look at the odds, if you take that score in the championship week, you double your title odds just from that one week. Because if you have the highest score in the championship and you're in the championship, you win. And your odds of being in the championship are one in six. Um, so you go from a one in 12 chance of winning to a one in six chance of winning, even if you don't know if you're gonna make the playoffs or not. So from a mathematical standpoint, um, and this is robust, um, any way you look at it, the playoffs are just massively more valuable than the regular season. How much more valuable depends on things like how many teams make the playoffs. If it's four playoff teams in a 12 team league, the regular season's a little bit more important. Um, for something like best ball mania, where playoff weeks, you're cutting out like 90% of the field, all of a sudden playoff weeks could easily be 300 times as valuable as regular season weeks in terms of in terms of your expected value in terms of your expected payout so no matter what these playoff weeks are, are massively disproportionately valuable and with that in mind if somebody's guaranteed to lose a couple regular season weeks it really doesn't reduce their value to their fantasy team much at all i mean just a teeny tiny bit what are the odds that those three weeks 
are going to that you're going to miss the playoffs by one win or you're going to miss the bye by one win and also there's a game that you would have won but instead you lost because most fantasy games aren't close even if um if jsn was playing the odds of him impacting your matchup are slim to none uh so i don't i don't mind rostering guys who are going to miss i often joke that my most common bye week in fantasy football is week one because uh, i just load up on guys who are injured or suspended to start the season the other question, though, with something like this is, um, so we've established how valuable are the first few weeks of the season? Not very valuable at all. They don't matter that much at all in terms of if your goal is winning a championship. Um, but how likely is a player who's injured now to get injured again? And if somebody's already injured, there is an elevated injury risk. We've talked about injury prone before. It's not as simple as saying injured now is bad. It depends on the injury. Um, broken bones heal cleanly after like a couple weeks to reacclimate to the game they're probably fine something like turf toe or a hamstring strain in the preseason that's a much harder story you know terry mclaurin getting turf toe that's bad not because he might miss the beginning of the season but because he's probably at a higher likelihood of either a re-injuring himself or b being at reduced effectiveness even if he does play um, so you have to downgrade for that. But I love getting guys who I think will be slow starters. Um, and if I take a couple early game losses, it's like you said, you know, even if you start 0-3, it's not like you're out of the playoff hunt. And if I'm more likely to be winning in weeks 14, 15, 16, I'll easily take the slower start. Um, a lot of times it's not injured players per se. Um, I like suspended players a little bit more depending on suspension and everything just because... You don't get the heightened risk of re-injury other than everybody is at a heightened risk of re-injury as they're getting into football shape. Um, there's kind of that ramp up period, but once they're past that, they're pretty good to go. Um, and then just in general, I really like drafting rookies because rookies are the only class of player in fantasy football who consistently scores more in the second half of the season than the first half. Um, and the second half is the half that matters. I mean, the first half matters a little, the second half matters a lot. Um, so if you look at my teams, they tend to be pretty heavy on injured players, pretty heavy on um, suspended players, and and pretty heavy on rookies. Uh, the market's kind of catching up to that a little bit. You've seen over the past five, six years, rookies are going higher in ADP, but I still think there's a little bit of an efficiency, inefficiency there um, where if you have two similarly valued receivers and one of them's a rookie and one of them's a vet, um, I think most of the time the rookie probably has a better chance of being the difference between winning and losing a championship than the vet does. I love that. And I, it's interesting. I would be interested in seeing whether that applies to quarterbacks and if we broke it down to quarterbacks based on whether they started early in the year and have a full second half for defenses to, to actually start scouting and doing their tape. Because one of the things that I've talked about a lot is that is that pro scouts – for teams, you know, they're, they're watching the players every week, but when it comes to a quarterback, coaches generally don't begin to implement what they've learned from the scouts until they've accumulated at least four to six weeks worth of games. So you, you don't begin to see them insert little tweaks into the defense to try and figure out ways to stop a quarterback beyond what their scheme has presented and then as they build a book on the player it gets a little bit more difficult they start testing these quarterbacks a little bit more so i wonder if like a 
a player who starts the year as you know a Zach Wilson who starts early and then has the second half of of the season where defenses go at him and now start to expose what he may not do as well. Maybe, you know, our quarterbacks in that situation tend to perform better early on and then hit a wall later, as opposed to a guy like a Lamar Jackson who gets to start in week eight, week nine, week 10, play the, you know, the next seven weeks and then now we're in the playoffs, you know? So I, I would be curious about that kind of a breakdown, you know, down the line. It would be kind of... Yeah, I just started spot-checking when you were looking at that. I'm on PFRF, and I'm trying to think of some rookie quarterbacks who played, who are 16-game starters. Um, so Jameis Winston had about 10% more yards in the second half of the year than he did in the first. Uh, Cam Newton... Uh... Cam Newton was down actually pretty significantly in the second half, although part of that was just Cam Newton. The first two games of his career were the two highest passing yardage totals of his entire career. He never threw for more yards than he did um, in his first two games. Fascinating. Um, which isn't actually that uncommon. Anquan Bolden actually never beat his his first game. Like, it happens more than you would think. Uh, people like to think of NFL careers as this, like, smooth, ordered curve where, like, whatever point they enter in, they're going to increase from there until they finally yeah. reach their peak and then go down. But it's really just some random wave fluctuation. And like some guys enter on a peak, some guys enter on a trough. It's it's far more random than people um, tend to think. Um, so yeah, I, that might be something that's interesting to look at um, for quarterbacks specifically. It's hard because for the most part, rookie quarterbacks just haven't really been worth considering. Yeah. Um, in large part because for the longest time, there just weren't good quarterbacks entering the league. Um, you know, like the the last huge wave of major quarterback talent prior to this recent one with, you know, Herbert and Mahomes and Josh Allen and Jalen Hurts. But prior to this big wave of, of talent we're, we're seeing right now, the last really big wave of, of talented Hall of Fame caliber quarterbacks was like 2000 to 2005 when you got Tom Brady and Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers and Philip Rivers and Ben Roethlisberger and it's it's hard to compare because the the philosophy on quarterback development was so different back then that most of those guys just didn't start and play right away. Yeah. So I got to say when you say the the strange the world's strangest genie, you know, I I, I got to ask you if you were old enough that you know you were watching television on a with the circular dial and you and you actually saw or flipped past I Dream of Genie because you kind of got the the drapery there but they just need to be in paisley you know or in in, in much brighter colors you've kind of got a you, you would be more like the drabest version of a genie at this point you know as well as maybe the as maybe well as the weirdest I mean keep Seattle weird would probably be I'm sure they have bumper stickers of that, just like they have that in Austin and in uh, and in Asheville. But uh, but you know, I don't know. I mean, did you see? Did you ever watch I Dream of Genie or was that? Yeah, I'm very familiar with I Dream of Genie. I'm a little bit overdressed, I think, for that comparison. <laughs> I think Meaning so I have too. A shirt on. Yeah, but... yeah, you're not wearing like basically glorified bikini, you know. So yeah. So I, I think I think. Um, Maybe next week. Yeah, something, something to consider. Something, something to consider. Just brighten up the curtains. You know that that might be what it is. Or you're just just hiding, you, you know, all the color 
from that, that's in the background here, I would have to imagine that's the case. Um, but now that you have the mental image of, of, of I Dream of Jeannie and Adam Harstead, I think this is the point that we probably end the show. Um, <laughs> but I hope that you, you know, hope you enjoyed it as much as we did doing it. Um, you can certainly follow Adam at Adam Harstead on X, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm at Matt Waldman. And uh, thanks again for listening, and uh, we'll see you next week.